Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored we get to talk with Dr. David Alfrey. He is the author of Saving Grace, What Patients Teach Their Doctors About Life, Death, and the Balance in Between. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Ron, this is the second time in three weeks that while preparing for this show and reading this book, I was, you know, taking my blood pressure every 15 minutes and and checking my you know atrial fibrillation on the on the, the, the watch until you're turning me into 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 a hypochondriac here, Ron. I know a cyberchondriac. I know. I know. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sucker for doctor memoirs and biographies. I just love it. But let me read Dr. David Alfrey was raised in the north, but moved to Louisiana to attend Tulane University, where he obtained a B.A. in English. He spent a year as a surgical intern at the University of Kentucky in Lexington before doing his residency in anesthesia at the University of California, San Diego. He stayed on there for an additional year fellowship training in cardiothoracic anesthesia. And in 1980, he moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where he spent a 36-year career in private practice. He's written 10 chapters in medical textbooks, lots of peer-reviewed articles. He's, and he's got 17 U.S. and international patents. Dr. Alfrey, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. Oh, this is great. Uh, as soon as I read your author's note, when you wrote for 36 years, I had the greatest job in the world, I was hooked. Uh, and then I was even more hooked after I read your introduction. But tell me what the title of the book, because there, there's multiple meanings in it, obviously, but what does it mean to you? Yeah, Saving Grace, um, saving grace really relates, first of all, to a particular patient that is in the introduction. And um, it was a young lady who was 19 years old, just graduated from high school. I was an intern in surgery at the University of Kentucky in my second month. And it was a young lady that had been burned horribly in a car crash caused by a drug driver. And uh, she had been in the service for about a week when I got there and she lived for another two weeks. And uh, with burns over 80% of her body, it was, there was just no way that she was going to live through her hospitalization. So I, I make the point that no matter what we did, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how hard she fought, there'd be no saving grace. And her name was Grace. And that particular patient was really pivotal in my, uh, in my growth as a doctor. Uh, in addition, the idea is that there, there's always a silver lining in the tragedies that we see, whether it's in, in medicine or just outside life. There's always a, uh, some saving grace that we can look to. If a, a terminal patient in pain dies, at least they're out of pain. And then finally, there are some things that occur 
again, in medicine and outside of medicine that just so defy the odds that are so improbable that you just can't believe that they have happened. And you may attribute that to luck or unbelievable uh, set of circumstances. And to me, it's an act of grace when that happens. So multiple meanings for that. Yeah, wonderful. And it does beautifully capture the theme of the themes of the book. And Doc, I have to ask you about the the photo on the cover. This is audio only, but I would imagine that's your hand on the cover. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I've got a nephew who's very talented and he's a graphic artist and he does movie posters. And he actually did the poster for um, uh, the Lion King, the Avengers, Guardians wow. of the Galaxy, Stranger Things 2 and 4. So he's a really accomplished kid. And he said, Uncle, I got an idea for the for the cover. And so it's a doctor's hand over a younger patient's hand. And it's my hand over my daughter's hand. And so it has special meaning to me. Because this, I, you know, part of the reason for writing this book was to to have something for my grandchildren uh, when I'm gone. You know, the chapters that I wrote, that's not going to mean anything to them at all. Uh, but hopefully this book will. Yeah, that's a, and you, you talk about that expression laying on of hands. Yes. Um, yeah, that's just that's beautiful. Um, so tell us about um, Dr. Buck Wiggers told you that anesthesiologists were the ICU doctors of the OR because you were considering going into emergency medicine, weren't you? Right. I uh, I was pretty burned out at the end of my uh, uh, internship. And this was back in the days when they didn't have limitations on house officers hours. And I'd had a rotation of every other night call on neurosurgery. And when you were on call, you didn't go to bed. And so you got up started your day at 5.30 in the morning and um, ended it a day and a half later at about eight o'clock at night. And after a month of that, I thought, you know, I just, I'm just not so sure I want to do this. And I was on an ICU rotation. And so the chairman had heard that I was going to leave and go into emergency medicine. And he very kindly uh, sought me out. And he said, David, I, I heard you're leaving surgery. And I said, I'm thinking about it. And so he asked me to come to see him in his office. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but he was a mentor of mine. He was going to influence my career in an unbelievable way. And he just described that, um, my prejudices against anesthesia, and I, I was typical of the, you know, sort of arrogant surgeon in training, like, you know, we're the tough guys in the hospital, and anesthesia up there, they'll just take orders from us. Um, he disabused me of that notion and really taught me that uh, it was critical critical care medicine that the anesthesiologists were doing, and that even though the uh, the uh, profession is sometimes described as 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. Um, that sheer terror made it a pretty exciting specialty. And so he guided me into anesthesia and actually um, asked me, once I said, I, I think I will try anesthesia, he listed a number of programs that he knew the chairman and he called them to try to secure me a position. And I asked him how San Diego was thinking the weather would be good. And he said, well, it's a top five program. It'll be filled. 
but later on that day, I got a call from his secretary who said, you're going to San Diego. They had a resident drop out at the last minute. Wow. So two of the most monumental decisions of my life were based on this kind doctor taking me aside and the fact that the weather was good in San Diego. I can understand that. <laughs> uh, it was just a total flaky way to decide where you're going to do your residency. Um, but it, it all turned out great. Well, you know, after talking to Dr. Jay Baruch a couple of weeks ago on the show, he went into emergency medicine and they both sound incredibly stressful to me. But um, I also love the lesson that you shared about Dr. John Carter. What did he teach you? Yeah, Dr. Carter taught me a couple of things with grace. When she died, um, the parents had witnessed their daughter struggling for life for three weeks. And if she somehow lived through her hospitalization, it would be a, a, a very grim existence outside the hospital. Uh, burns that amount on your body, you're just absolutely disabled and disfigured. Uh, and surely they knew that. And they also likely knew that she would not survive her hospitalization. And when Grace died, uh, Bill Carter ran the code, and that's our, that's our uh, language for her heart stopped and we tried the resuscitation. But he ran it kind of half-heartedly, knowing that there was no point in prolonging her agony. And he brought the parents into the quiet room. And the quiet room, for people who aren't familiar with that, is a room that's adjacent to every ICU. They're generally on the at the end of the ward of a hospital. And they're just sort of nondescript, pretty cheerless places with a little furniture and a, and a solid door because you're going to have uh, the worst conversation a family will ever hear. And he brought the family in and I, I thought, how do you even begin to give them any kind of comfort when you're telling them that their daughter has perished? And um, as I said in the introduction, I remember that conversation. I remember the beginning and the end of it, like where I was when the Challenger blew up or on 9-11. He told the parents that Grace had died. And, and then I can't remember the other things that he said, but the last sentence he said to her, to them was, I want you to know it was a privilege to take care of your daughter. And that was a gift that they could take after they buried Grace, but it was also an enormous gift to me because for the next three years of training, four years of training, and for then 36 years of practice, I never forgot that when you take care of a patient, it's a privilege. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and then a little later on in the book, you talk about, a doctor, I guess, asked you to go into the quiet room as well with him to talk to the family. And you wrote about sharing that burden, but yes, because yeah, usually you, know, you, you don't get the anesthesiologist in there, right? Yes. In my practice, my practice is a little bit unusual. And at one of the hospitals that I worked in for many years, if there was a code, we ran the codes. They, you know, the anesthesiologist carried the code beeper. So when it went off, we went running off to the wherever it was and ran the code. And um, if a patient died in the code and the 
a regular attending doctor hadn't showed up yet. Well, it, it it fell to us to tell the family, and that was always pretty difficult because we'd never even met the family before. But traditionally and typically in surgery, when there's a death in the OR, the surgeon trudges off solitary to talk to the family while everybody else sort of cleans up the OR and tries to get through the experience. And about 15 years before I retired, it, it just occurred to me that maybe I should be going with the surgeon to so somehow share that burden of talking to the family. And when I did that, the the first time I did it, the surgeon was very surprised. And he said, well, gosh, I've never had the anesthesiologist come along, but I'd, I'd love to have you. And I found that really to my surprise that not only was it comforting to the surgeon and the family, but it was comforting to me as well. And just the idea that we can share our grief, we can spread it out amongst ourselves. And so when I did go to the families with a surgeon, and it happened more often than I'd like, because I was in cardiac in a big tertiary hospital, and we did have a fair number of patients die on the table over the years. Um, I always told them that it was a privilege to take care of their loved one. And it was speaking from the heart. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, you know, Dr. Baruch talked about the pause when a patient dies in the trauma unit or whatever, and it's got to be the same in the OR, I would imagine. Well, you know, the OR, it's... It's almost like the Middle Ages, the way we practice. In my practice life, if you had a death in the OR, you cleaned up, you pulled the instruments for the next case, you moved them in, and the train kept running. And I think it's recognized now how unhealthy that is, but we just trudged on. And when I, I've heard Dr. Burke talking about that, and I realized that is such an appropriate and healthy way to do it. And we never did that in any of the ORs I worked at. Um, wow. Well, Dr. Uh, Alfrey, this is wonderful. And unfortunately, it's flying by. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel at uh, patreon.com slash TSOE where you can subscribe. And of course, that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More Minds meld at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsor. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Now. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Dr. David Alfrey. But Ron, you know, here on The Soul of Enterprise, we often talk about the future and innovation. And with our new sponsor, Winolo, which stands for Work Now, I'm sorry, work now locally. Yep. The future of work is here. No more resumes, no more interviews. That's right, Ed. Wolono is an innovative online staffing platform that connects available workers with companies in different industries that need jobs filled in the near future. Whether you're a worker looking for short-term jobs to make some extra money or to build your skills in a different industry, or you're a company looking for experienced local workers to help out, you need to check them out. Winolo isn't staffing agency. They're a marketplace for future work. More than 1 million people across the U.S. use Winolo to find short-term jobs based on their interests, skills, and availability. Thousands of companies have trusted Wolono, such as Papa John's Pizza, Peloton, and Edible Arrangements. Download the Wolono, uh, Wolono app from the App Store or Google Play Store to tap into the future of work or check them out on the web at wonolo.com slash soul today. All right. Dr. David, yes. um, I have, uh, we did a show a long time ago called We Are All Consultants Now. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the, the things that I've, I've uh, postulated in my career is that, that many professionals are, were just a variation on consultants. So cons- you're, you're a consultant on anesthesia and the process behind medicine. I consulted on, on IT. So a lot of the stuff that I want to talk to you about is with, with that kind of concept in mind that this top level consulting thing exists and then we all do different things different ways. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about, something that is, you, you talked about this in chapter three of your book. So the first lesson you learned from Mr. Cooley is to accept immediately that when a patient appears in acute distress, they really are as sick as they appear. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, this is something that in your training, it's you have to learn this. And there is a tendency, I think, for all young doctors to get in an emergency situation and try to talk themselves out of the fact that the patient is as sick as they are in front of them. Because life's a lot easier if they're not sick, not, not that critically ill. If they're critically ill, You've got to figure it out. You've got to do something quickly. So I think that there's an almost an unconscious attempt to deny the fact that the patient is as critically ill in front of you. 
And I had to learn that the hard way. I was called to the ward to a, a patient that was, you know, gasping for breath and really on the brink of dying. And for about 90 seconds, I just spun my wheels and tried to reassure the patient. And uh, no, we're going to help you to breathe here. And I was just stalling until I finally realized that, that I was in over my head. And then I called Dr. Carter and he came in and actually saved the patient's life. And uh, that taught me that when you see a patient that is that sick, they are that sick until you prove it otherwise. And um, if you're in acute uh, intensive care medicine, uh, where you have to make very quick decisions, you have to be able to do that. And if you can't, then you can't be in any of those fields, whether it's anesthesiology, surgery, emergency medicine, and so forth. Um, in consulting, we, we, we have borrowed this term, I believe, from medicine, and that is what's called the, the axiom of the presenting problem, right? You, you, there's a presenting problem, but there really could be something behind the problem that's really the problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, when you have a critically ill patient, uh, you've got to go through in your mind a lot of things quickly. You've got to process them. You've got to understand which are which are the important ones, which to emphasize. Emphasize. <laughs> emphasize, yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm dyslexic. Um, and, and which to discount. And, you know, you can have... Uh, you know, uh, a confirmation bias and other things that are operating really unconsciously. And so it's it's really rigorous to sort out what it is that's actually happening in front of you and be able to make the decision decisively how to act. And if you can't do that, you've got to get someone else and get them quickly. I think that's so true because that's where I wanted to go next is this notion of confirmation bias because I see it affect all professions. It affects all of us in our lives, really. It's not just limited to professionals. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I first heard it described about medicine, but it's in every single field. And um, it's just the fact that, you know, this unconscious tilting of the mind that if I come upon something and and it, it seems to me that this is what's happening. The, the things that I see that confirm that I'll emphasize in my mind and the ones that don't confirm that I'll tend to discount. So that as a physician, when you come upon a critically ill patient, you just have to keep your mind open and say, okay, it looks like this, but let's make sure it's not that as well. And it all happens very quickly. Yes. The, the next thing I wanted to mention, and just to let you know that you, there were so many different stories in your book that triggered in me stuff that I have seen for, from a business perspective. And, and the, here, I want to share, share this one with you. You said to, that you know, doctors sometimes, um, and I think all, all medical professionals tend to do this, they'll refer to their patient by their pathology, like the gallbladder in, in 312. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time at that where Starbucks was having a, a customer service problem, a challenge, and Howard Schultz had to come back. And one of the things that they found, it, it, here's the parallel, is that instead of calling out people's names for their drink, they were just calling out the drink. They would just say, and this was done in in, in the interest of efficiency to make sure yes. that we got the that we got the, the the right drink to the right person, but it wasn't acknowledging the person's humanness. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Anesthesia is such a a solitary specialty in the sense that we meet a patient in a really uh, emotion-charged situation, Uh, even if it's not a big operation. They realize they're going to go to sleep. They're going to lose that sense of control that that they've got to put their trust in us in 10 minutes to literally take them closer to death than they'll ever come in their lifetime and then bring them back. And we're a total stranger. And in an effort to get that trust and realizing that the whole doctor-patient relationship is such an intimate one and such an important one, when I would pre-op a patient, I'd do the medical things, but I always put my hand on their shoulder when I listened to their heart. And I always ended my interview with a personal question. You know, how long have you been married? How many grandchildren do you have? Whatever it is, just to let them know you aren't a number and you aren't the gallbladder in 312. You're Mr. Jones. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take good care of you. That's great. Um, right after that, that story, you, you have this sentence, which I'd like you to expound on in a little bit, um, said, we know that anesthesia works, <laughs> but we don't know precisely how it works. <laughs> wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. Um, the precise mechanism of how anesthesia anesthetizes you is unknown. And I, I, I bring out in the book, I think, that uh, we don't know how it anesthetizes you, and not only you, but birds, mammals, reptiles, insects, fish. The Venus flytrap uh, is rendered senseless, and seed germination stops in the presence of our gases. And you take those gases away, and they all improbably wake up. It's just, it's miraculous. Uh, and we don't know how it does. We, it. we don't know exactly how it does it. It's just, <laughs> we just know how to do it. <laughs> I've heard the same thing said, heard of browning in cooking, believe it or not. We know how <laughs> things get black. We don't know how they get brown. Very weird. All right. <laughs> um, th- this one last sentence before, for our break here, you said throughout my career, I, I juggle with the moment when I uh, was qualified to do something on my own whether it was a tr- trivially as sewing up a, s- a superficial laceration or as complex as placing a deep needle uh, inside someone's body to destroy the nerves of a cancer patient suffering pain. And what that clued in me is something that I have as a technology person always taken for granted. I always had a freaking backup. Like if <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you guys don't have a backup, so well, to speak. So that's the difference between being in training where you've got the people ahead of you, you got people around you. And let's say being on call in the middle of the night, it's you and you alone. And um, that's, uh, that's just the way it is. And if, and even during the day, if it's a new procedure, you're in private practice. Now you, you know, you're, you don't have a, a senior resident to teach it to you. Um, I have literally done uh, a nerve block where I have gone around the corner from the holding area, checked that YouTube video again and came, came back around and then finished the block. Now, uh, if that had been a dangerous thing, I never would have done that. 
But the fact is that we learn things two ways, either with our eyes or our ears. Uh, I've either seen it or on a video or read it, or someone has told me. And sometimes you learn it now by looking at a video saying, okay, that's where you put the needle. All right, I'm going to go do that. And some things you say happen so infrequency, and you're not blithe about it, but it's sometimes it's see it once, do it once, teach it the next time. That's right. See one, do one, teach one. <laughs> Amazing. But not, not the tough ones. Not the tough ones. Yeah. <laughs> tough ones we, we spend a little bit more time on. That's well, this right. is just absolutely fantastic, doctor, and, and want to thank you for coming on today. But we have, do have, have to pay our bills, and the way we do that is by running commercials and also by having our Patreon channel, which is available at patreon.com slash TSOE. That Patreon channel is sponsored by 90minds. If you need a mine, get one at 90minds.com. It's also sponsored by our top-level patrons like Geraldine Carter. Geraldine has business strategy for CPAs podcast, which is available at geraldinecarter.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. David Alfrey, this author of Saving Grace, and Doc, when you talked about that mistake you made as an intern, you said it revealed a dirty little secret of medicine. Mistakes are commonly made. And I've read multiple places that there's a saying among doctors, especially surgeons, I think, say, you know, forgive, but remember. Yes. Well, I, I, I don't really have a question about this, but I mean, is there, how worried should we be about mistakes that are commonly made? <laughs> well, um, fortunately, we generally don't make the big mistakes. Uh, but in fact, uh, it's an imperfect science. Uh, 
and there are imperfect people that are practicing it. I think the best that you can do is find a practitioner who says, you know, if I don't know it, I'm going to go find out it, or I'm going to ask someone, I'm going to send you to a specialist, somebody that's really conscious, conscientious, that's really detail oriented, and that will do the very, very best for you. But even in that world, uh, when you think about it, um, I, uh, in generally in, in medical school, maybe passing grade 75. Well, I want the doctor who got 100 on the test. Well, nobody gets 100 on the test. And um, you just do the best you can. There's a, a, a sort of a sardonic joke that is told, uh, what do you call the person who finishes very last in your medical school class? Doctor. Doctor, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you also, uh, and I've read this multiple times, especially from surgeons like brain surgeons. You, you quote the French surgeon who was at Rene. Oh, yes. Every surgeon carries within himself a small cemetery where from time to time he goes to pray. Uh, wow, that's, <laughs> I, I, you know, you talked about that, that balance that you have to bring between being dispassionate, having dispassionate detachment and having too much empathy. It must be a very difficult tightrope. It can be. Uh, you, you can't help but get involved in your patients in terms of the, your emotional feeling for them. And I think that a younger patient uh, who's maybe fighting for their life, uh, you get more involved with an older patient. You can somehow say they've had a good life and, and every life has to come to an end. And maybe this is the time, but there is a, there's a poignancy in medicine that is really profound. If you're a normal human being and uh, we carry a lot of patients inside of us uh, that we've taken care of. Now, while you're taking care of them, you just, have to divorce yourself from any feelings and just look at it very clinically, very coldly, if you will. This is a case. This is how I need to take care of it. Uh, but afterwards, that human being becomes a part of you. And I've got a lot of patients that I put in little boxes that uh, if I go to visit them, uh, it can be painful. I have a great respect for surgeons because they're the ones who take someone who is in whatever state of health. And if I'm a cardiac surgeon, state of health, now I operate. And if that patient dies, I've, I've got this unbelievable sense of responsibility because four hours ago they were alive. And then through my actions, they're no longer alive. And that's a really crushing burden for them to take. And I think that's why Rene LaRiche said that they go back and visit those tombstones from time to time. And I would imagine too, doc, that in, in your line, you don't have, you don't get closure a lot. I mean, you, I know you see the patient out of the OR, but other than that, you probably do. You, do you ever see them again? Do they ever come back and thank you or, um, generally, no. Generally, they they forget our name pretty quickly. If you've, this is not a specialty that you go in if you really have a need for people to praise you. 
you're 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 pretty nameless and faceless other than to the surgeons now sadly some patients do come back for uh, mm -hmm. cases again and again and and they'll often request you because you know, you've connected with them but um there's not a lot of follow up in that right right it's something that i never you, you know you don't think about as a patient but yeah like the er doc and you, it, you just you don't get that circularity back. <laughs> um, right. The other thing, you know, you talk very movingly about your faith journey in the book. And when a patient would say, you know, my church is praying for me, you would always say, I've already prayed for you today. Like the placebo effect, there is something to this, isn't there? Well, I think so. Um, I think getting in touch, I think it gets in touch with our sort of inner core, uh, whether you're religious or not, um, I don't think anybody would ever object to hearing, I've already prayed for you today. Now, I never said that to anybody who didn't say something like, my church has been praying for me or the pastor was in the room. But um, there's something, I think there's sort of a sacredness in all of us uh, that goes far beyond, we're just flesh and bones floating through this earth. Um, yeah, they say there's no atheist in a foxhole. I'm sure there's no atheist in OR either, or, or about to be wheeled many. into OR. <laughs> um, you, you, you know, talking about the pause and how you thought that that was a great way to, to deal with, you know, the death of somebody. And you also wrote about decades ago, the surgeon was the captain of the ship in the OR. But that's not true today, is it? No, not at all. Um, now there's real equality in the OR. And what happened was this culture of safety has come into the OR. And they looked at the, the uh, nuclear uh, power mm. industry as an example. Uh, the lowest technician can shut down a nuclear reactor if they detect something unsafe. And in the same sense, before an operation starts, an orderly cleaning the room could stop everything because they realize that if you've got a captain of the ship, people are intimidated. Well, it's not my place. Um, and then uh, violations of safety or uh, some problem with safety was not spoken about. And by making it all equal, now everybody feels comfortable in saying whatever they need to, to make it safer and safer and safer. Um, the, you know, the concept on, on TV is that if the, if the patient's uh, heart stops in the operating room, well, you know, the surgeon is commanding what to do and the obsequious anesthesiologist is following orders. Well, in fact, when there's an arrest in the, o in the OR, the surgeon stands back and maybe they're, maybe they'll, participate in this, in pumping on the chest, but that's it. It's the anesthesiologist who's running the code. Um, it's one of the many misconceptions that we have on TV right. and in the movies to dramatize what happens. That's your 1% terror. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real, it's a real uh, concept of equality and safety that pervades the operating room. Now it's very healthy. Right. I, I've read that about airlines too. The co-pilot yes. can question the, the pilot. It, and you talk about the Swiss cheese model where just all the airs line up perfectly and, Oh, um, I also wanted to ask you, you've done many medical missions, the Caribbean, Roma especially the how you talked about the Romanian one. I think it was yes. a pediat 
pediatric hospital um, where there, I mean, there were no x-ray boxes to, they taped them up on the windows and there was no machines. Uh, talk about how that, what, what lessons you learned from doing those medical missions. Yeah. You know, the medical missions were probably the most rewarding part of my medical career. And I, I think if you talk to doctors and nurses and others that go on these medical missions, they will tell you that was the high point of their career. Uh, people that that might praise me and say, oh, gosh, you know, what a great guy you were going on these medical missions. Well, no, I got back so much more than I ever gave. Um, so they were just so rewarding. Uh, they were tough, though, because I was a cardiac anesthesiologist, an adult cardiac anesthesiologist, and we would do children. And I did very few kids in my practice. And the younger and the smaller they were, the more terrified I would become. Yeah. And you're not in your own uh, milieu. You don't have all the equipment that you're used to. And uh, I would liken it to doing a cardiac case. I'm flying a 747. Well, if I've got a little baby in a third world country, I'm a single engine crop duster and um, really way out of my comfort zone and spent the week scared, <laughs> frankly, but unbelievably rewarding. Um, and remote Romania was really a, a really special one because it had, it had fallen. The iron curtain had fallen just four or five years earlier. Um, yeah. I like how that one doctor said it's an hour and a half of our life, but it's the rest of their life. Yes. Yeah. That's, and, and I guess it also, you know, some historians said to know only one country is to know none, meaning that if you didn't have yeah. anything to compare yours to, you must have felt pretty good when you came back to all that high yeah, tech. And, and you know, the other thing, I, I had this sort of bias that a lot of American doctors have, I think, that, that well, we're the best. You know, we've got the best equipment. We've got the best training. Uh, and I know my first trip to uh, Venezuela, they said, well, there's going to be three Venezuelan surgeons working as well. And I always remember my naive reaction to that, thinking, oh, gosh, I, I hope I'm with one of the Americans. And then we worked with the Venezuelans. And they could operate rings around the mm. Americans that, that came with us. They were just fabulous. And I thought, you know, how stupid you have been to think. Um, and there are fabulous doctors everywhere. Um, I was disabused of that notion pretty quickly. That's awesome. And, you know, you end by saying a wise man once said that we live two lives. The second one begins when we realize that we only have one. Yeah, you know, even in medicine, uh, there is a denial of our mortality. And when I was younger in medicine, we take care of critically ill patients and maybe a patient would die and uh, it was sad, and uh, but it's just a dirty part of the job. And I never really looked to my own death when I was young. I was going to live like live forever. And I think that it's universal for all of us as we age uh, to finally dawn upon us that, you know, we're not here forever. And um, we should really be living our lives accordingly. 
Well, Dr. Alfrey, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. What an honor to have you on. Just, uh, I can't recommend this book enough. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. Doc, Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home. And folks, uh, now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with the author of Saving Grace, What Patients Teach Their Doctors About Life, Death, and the Balance in Between, Dr. David Alfrey. So much, so thank you so much for being on today. I want to ask you about this that you mentioned in the book. This is in Chapter 7, Fragility. Uh, you say, however, I could be teamed with four or more total strangers coming to work together for the first time in a complex operation, and we still generally functioned well. How is that possible? You know, I'm not sure how that's possible, but it is. Um, I think that you know your job, you know what you're supposed to do. The other people know their jobs, what they're supposed to do. And um, it's, it's just more comfortable and efficient if you've worked together before. But I know that I'm going to put the patient on the table and put them to sleep. And the, uh, the circulator is going to uh, scrub the betadine on. Uh, the surgeon and the, uh, the first assistant are going to put the drapes on. We just all have our jobs and it just moves like a machine. Uh, it's very much like a recording uh, session in Nashville. Uh, where I've been in, you know, I've known some people in music and they brought me into the studio. And um, if even if these players haven't played before, you'd think that they played that song a hundred times the first time they play it. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about, you, you, you say that uh, uh, when you're, that your church has been praying for you and I've already prayed for you today, um, 
it reminded me of the my my, my father who's who passed away a couple of years ago. His his favorite quote from scripture, which is Mark uh, chapter nine verse twenty four, which is, I, "I believe, help my unbelief." Interesting. <laughs> Um, so re- re- how would, how would that reflect on that? You, 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 in a sense, you almost have to have that as a surgeon, you have belief, but there's always a little bit of unbelief in what, what you're doing. I think there's doubt in everybody's mind in just about all areas of life. Um, I think that people of faith that, um, I, I, I don't understand people of faith that have absolutely no doubt. Um, there's, there's things that, that we're not allowed to know. We don't get to know. I don't know what's beyond the universe. Um, I don't understand the passage of time. I think there's things that, that because we're human, we just have a, a finite to us, a finiteness. And uh, I think for me, faith is one of those things. And it's, it's, it's just hope and, and in something that's unknown and unseen. You mentioned later in the book, you say, and I'm quoting now, uh, when I went into medicine, I naively thought that being a doctor would give me an inside track that would shield me from the frailties and uncertainties that everyone seemed to experience when faced with a serious illness or operation. Talk a little bit about that and how it's actually worse. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it. the joke was on me. Uh, it, it really has turned into be more of a burden than a blessing. Um, you know, when my mother was uh, 95 years old and, and had a, a sudden uh, catastrophe, uh, the, you know, the family all looked to me, do we operate or not? And um, you don't really want to take that on your shoulders. And I, and I mean, the surgeon and the, and the refer, her doctor said, we've got to go to the OR right now. And I said, no, we're not going to go to the operating room at all. Uh, because she's going to die in the she's going to die in this hospital on a ventilator in two weeks if we do that, and um, to be in a position of having to make that decision without any help around you can be a little burdensome. Um, when it comes to taking care of my own family, when my daughter was having surgery and she suffered a, a, a life threatening bleed, I found that. At the end of the day, I was just like any other father, absolutely helpless, nothing I could do. I could only hope and pray that the medical team would bring her through. All that knowledge didn't help me one little bit, uh, but it did let me know just how serious it was and understand the gravity of it. And she could very well die with what was happening. And I'd be curious as to your thoughts. You do do mention, and I've seen this as well, that, that there are some studies that, that indicate that doctors use fewer resources at the end of their life than regular regular folk. Yes. Um, and do you think that that's something that's going to continue or are we are we getting a little bit better at this where doctors are saying, hey, maybe maybe I do need to back off. Maybe I shouldn't just rush everybody into the OR. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about what this is going to look like, even even under the best of circumstances, if we help somebody. Yeah, I hope we're getting better. Um, I, I saw so often in the ICU, just this sort of blind marching forward that there's another intervention that's possible. Well, we'll do it. And it didn't matter that the patient had a terminal process or that there was two weeks of misery 
ahead of them, and and then the death would come. Um, uh, that I think when it comes to picking your own doctor, having that conversation with this is what I want in the end. I don't want anything heroic. I want to realize that when the time has come to to try to face it as gracefully as I can, and you make me comfortable for this exit. Um, I think there's. I think there's a little bit more knowledge that that's the way to go, but I just saw so often it wasn't followed that way. And and I think we probably are getting perhaps a little bit getter, better at having those conversations as individuals earlier in our lives. I hope that that's also something that's happening yeah. because if you wait until the very end and it's never talked about, well, then you have to, I guess, just kind of assume, yes, of course, bring yeah. mom back. <laughs> Yeah, no, you've got to have an advanced directive and you've got to talk to your children and let them know exactly uh, what your wishes are. Because when you get there, you may well not be able to articulate it. Um, and uh, so one thing I, I did mention, you were talking, you mentioned Michael Jackson in, in the in the book. Oh, yes. How his, his disaster. And, and I, I've heard this joke that says, if you want to kill someone, get them a personal physician. <laughs> Uh, I hadn't heard that, but I, I, I always said that if you have enough fame and enough money, you can buy the worst care in America. Yeah, and, <laughs> but um, it's, it's a similar concept, right? The notion is is that yeah. if you are, if you're a personal physician for someone, you got to do something. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know the the chapter on equality was: I don't care if you're rich or poor, you're famous or unknown you get the same care as everyone. And I always said to my partners, if, you, if you've got the VIP in and you're treating them any different than all your other patients, all it means is you're doing all the other ones wrong. Well, and to that end, and we'll wrap up on this, we've got about two minutes left, but, and only because it, it ends on a, I think a, a, a happier, a cheerier note. Tell the story of Dr. Clock. Oh, Dr. Clock. <laughs> you know, Dr. Clock got my book the other day and uh, uh, the the gentleman who was bringing, to, bringing it to him said, he's going to be furious. And I said, but I, I did say he looked like Charlton Heston. Um, <laughs> Dr. Clock is really a, a really elegant man, uh, very accomplished, uh, very rich, uh, a physician who started his own company and um, came in with a, a fractured hip after uh, a bicycle accident, and it was just fractured into pieces. And uh, looked like it was going to be a really nasty case. And he insisted on having an epidural, and I insisted on him having a general because I thought we might get into some bleeding. And he said, "I want that epidural," and I said, "You're not going to get that epidural." <laughs> And you just have to say, look, I know you've run a multi-billion dollar corporation, but you're not in charge and I'm not going to give you something that's bad for you. And it just so turned out that he did get into a lot of bleeding. And if he'd had that epidural, it would have been an absolute disaster. And uh, he got the care that would be equal to everybody else, which is you're not going to be treated like a VIP. You're going to be treated like everyone else because they are all VIPs. They all get the same care. 
Right, right. Well, I, I wrote an, in a, in the margin when I read that story. He 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 knew just enough to be a menace to himself. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say that about yeah. He knew just just enough medicine to be dangerous. That's right. That's right. Well, Ron, this has been great. Thank you so much, Doctor Alfrey. And Ron, what do we got coming up next week? And next week, Ed, we're going to talk about strategy. All right. Well, then that sounds great. I'll see you in 167 hours. And Doc, hang with us. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com for more information. We'll have full show notes on our interview today with Dr. Alfrey and where you can find his book, Saving Grace. Also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. <laughs>